what we are seeing during this pandemic is we are seeing the fallout of decades of telling people of faith that scientists are not to be trusted, that scientists will tell you things that are wrong just because they don't want you to believe the Bible, that they will tell you things that they will hide, for example, evidence for creation from you because they don't want you to believe in God. And so for decades, we have been telling people of faith that scientists are not to be trusted, that scientists will doctor the evidence, that scientists um, are propping up a certain uh, narrative. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's not surprising then to see uh, people saying, well, the government are these, the doctors are, are hiding these cures like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine from us because they just want us to take that government vaccine. And so you can take out some of the vaccine verbiage and you insert creationism, evolution verbiage, and you almost have an identical dialogue. Uh, because we've told Christians for decades, scientists are not to be believed. But exactly what you were saying, we will take our insulin if we have diabetes. We thank God for new cancer cures and new cancer treatments uh, without acknowledging that the exact same science that gave us those new cancer treatments tell us that all life has common ancestry and that life on earth evolved. Uh, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the science that serves me and my family personally and that the same exact science is telling us that the earth is old and that all of life is related. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back this week with an actual scientist. So I am excited because it's, it's been a while. Uh, we haven't had a scientist on in a long time. And so uh, I was very excited to have Dr. Janet Kellogg Ray on this week. And so we have some, we had a really good conversation um, just about kind of the current state of affairs and folks, you know, and the, the differing viewpoints on science right now and, and how kind of science has kind of got tied up into politics, which it shouldn't because science, you know, is kind of uh, ambivalent, you know, to, to politics, you know, science doesn't really care which political affiliation uh, you're in. So, uh, so we talk a lot about that and just kind of how it's it's become kind of this political uh, pawn or this political piece now, and it and it really has been at our own uh, detriment, I think. So some interesting interesting thoughts uh, on that. But before we get into that, some uh, general housekeeping stuff. So if you're you're new to the podcast, thank you so much for for joining. We have a ton of back. Uh, catalog episodes that you can check out that are available for free uh, anywhere you stream your podcasts or if you go to our website www.thedeconstructionists.com you can listen to all of our back catalog there uh, you can link to us on social media you can read our blog. Uh, you can check out our web store. Uh, the web store is now updated. I didn't realize that uh, some of the quantities were uh, were not working. And uh, in general, it didn't look like uh, a lot of it was working. I hadn't checked it out in a while. So that's, uh, that's my fault. But it should be working now. Uh, got all the quantities updated and the sizes updated. So it should be uh, replenished uh, for all the different t-shirt designs. And of course, the pint glasses and coffee mugs and all that good stuff. So if you're looking for a Christmas present, uh, you can you can check out some some items there. And if there's something you're looking for that you don't see on there, feel free to email me, email me 
I don't know why that was so hard to say, but you can email me and um, I'll, I'll take a look at the inventory and see what we got. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, if you want to support us uh, and the work that we're doing here at the Deconstructionist Podcast, uh, feel free to join our Patreon. Uh, I've got a couple different uh, different uh, things going on there, including a book club where we send you a book every month. Uh, sometimes it's a guest that we've had on the show. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just something that we're reading that we think is interesting. So, uh, so if you want to check that out, you can. Uh, otherwise, let's talk about this week's guest. Uh, so, like I said, Dr. Janet Kellogg Ray. Uh, she is currently an adjunct clinical assistant professor at the University of North Texas in the Department of Biological Sciences. She holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of North Texas, uh, master's in education in gifted education from Hardin Simons University and a Bachelor of Science Education in Biology from Abilene Christian University. Uh, Fascinating uh, conversation. Like I said, she's got a great new book out called baby dinosaurs on the ark, which, uh, <laughs> I love. Um, it's just, a, it's, that's just a great, that's just a great title for a book. Um, and so we talk all about, uh, you know, like I said, the, the various, uh, stances on science and evolution and all, all sorts of fun things. Uh, and she does it from, uh, you know, the perspective of somebody who grew up in a religious household. So she's a Christian and a scientist. Yes, those two things can coexist. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy the conversation. Uh, if you enjoy the music as well, kind of switching over to some theme music, our friend Clay uh, has finally released his uh, long-awaited uh, EP that was written specifically about his own spiritual journey, his own deconstruction. Uh, so you can go and find that out there anywhere good music is found. Uh, but a couple of the songs uh, that you probably heard on here is Does God and Recover. And those two tracks are actually off of Clay's brand new EP that just came out called The Recover EP. And so go check it out. Links are in the uh, show notes. So go check it out. If you like it, support Clay in his uh, in his music. But uh, you'll, you'll hear probably some other songs off of that EP uh, between now and when we get to around Christmas time. So if you enjoy it, go check it out. But without further ado, here is this week's guest, Janet Kellogg Ray. Tina, and Ahmed or Mildred, or Russ and his husband, Gus and their children, face like a king. All right, very excited uh, to introduce this week's guest. It's been a while since I've had somebody on to talk about science. So, welcome to the podcast, Janet Kellogg Ray. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording. I, you know, Deb Harsma, who we are a huge fan of at this podcast, interviewed her some some years back, wrote the intro to your yeah. new book. She did. <laughs> she did. So so talk a little bit about before we jump into your book, which is fantastic, by the way. Um, tell tell folks a little bit about your background. Were you raised particularly religious or what was your kind of background there? Oh, I was definitely raised religious. I was raised in a very conservative, probably would be considered a fundamentalist wing of what is known as the Restoration Movement, uh, the mainstream churches of Christ. Uh, my paternal grandfather was a preacher, and my entire family life centered around church. We went three times a week without fail, and probably the most scarring part of that in my childhood was that I didn't see Wizard of Oz until I was an that adult. That is a shame. <laughs> because Wizard of Oz always broadcast on Sunday night. And likewise, I was never able to see the wonderful world of Disney unless I was homesick on a Sunday night. But um, all that to say, church was very central to our life. Uh, we took the Bible literally. Uh, the motto of our particular tribe was we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. So we would have no more questioned the historicity of Genesis than we would have uh, the existence of Jesus. It just really never came up. I don't recall um, any specific 
uh, discussions in church growing up because, like I said, it was just uh, taken as a given that, that Genesis was a historical, literal account. And so that was my growing up. That was my um, background probably until I got in middle school, in junior high, and took my very first in-depth science class. Um, I talk about that a little bit in a book because my dad made me, and I'm forever grateful to my dad for that because it changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I remember studying for the first time what we then called the animal kingdom in middle school and then also in high school biology. And I definitely remember feeling some kind of a disconnect between what I had learned in church and what I was seeing with my own eyes. Now, we were never directly taught evolution, even in a public school, but this was in the 70s and that could have got me fired. But I remember specifically thinking about some of the less complex animals and just being amazed that they had some of the same organs, some of the same systems that I saw in the more familiar mammals. And I remember thinking, these animals look like they are just different takes on the same pattern. And that something about just special creation where every single organism was created specially and individually, I just remember kind of having that as a vague question. But again, not really having any of the vocabulary to, to voice those questions, it kind of just got put on the back burner. But I loved biology, and I, I took that love of biology to university. I ended up getting a biology undergrad degree uh, with my secondary teaching credentials, and I went to a Christian university. I got a wonderful biology education there. Um, I actually taught labs for them. Again, these animal labs, I loved that um, survey of the animal kingdom. Uh, but we conveniently ignored evolution. Uh, the professors would say, here it is in the textbook. You need to know it. And that was about it. And so that was the about the extent of my education and as far as questioning. And I remember taking some of those questions and kind of having the thought process of, well, you know, if I kind of close one eye and squint a little bit, can I make those days of creation fit the fossil record? And it was, you know, it was a bit scary to me um, to kind of go beyond that in my thinking processes. I was really good about putting them on uh, the back burner. And then about probably 10 years after I graduated from undergrad, uh, the the biology department at my alma mater was just thrown into turmoil. Uh, two of our favorite uh, professors, and one in particular who I taught labs for, um, became the target of, at that time, a well-known young earth creationist apologist. And using the power of the alumni, went after these professors and ruined their careers. And that was just devastating to those of us who had had uh, these professors. And that was probably my motivation for the first time as a young adult to really start looking into uh, the science that I had never been specifically instructed in, the science of origins, the science of the age of the earth. It, it, it's always the argument has always kind of struck me as a strange hill to die on too. you know, like this idea that no, God created the earth in six days. No, God created the earth in six million years, whatever it's who, you know, I, I always thought like, who cares, you know, like it, how God did it. And so it, it always kind of struck me as a strange argument because we kind of view the Bible as sort of this cookbook you know, like it's telling right. us how things were made when it's it doesn't seem to me that the Bible is ever designed in such a way to answer those types of questions. You know, I thought a lot about that, and I, I don't think this is simplifying things, but I really think it's not the science. I don't think that the science, when it comes right down to it, is the problem. Um, it's theology that demands it. 
you know, if it was the science, you would think that there would be that there, if there was truly evidence for special creation or intelligent design or a young earth, if there truly was scientific evidence for this, you would think there would be at least a few non-religious people who would uh, support this, but you just don't see it. And scientists love to prove each other wrong. They love to prove each other wrong. And so you would think that if it was the science, that it wouldn't be the hill to die on. But people will die on their theology hills. And so it's a theology of inerrancy uh, that becomes um, at risk. It's a theology of original sin. And was there death before the fall? And even to the point of uh, God's sovereignty, is God actually sovereign if there's anything that's left up to, to, to chance or randomness as it's seen? And so I really think that when it comes down to it, it's not the science. It's not the science that people are willing to die on that hill, but they are willing to die on their theology. And that is is can be a whole other discussion. You know, it was actually the same thing with Galileo. Um, there were there were people at the time of Galileo who were just as strong in uh, believers in a sun centered solar system as Galileo was. It's just that they were a little nicer than Galileo, <laughs> and they they played the game a little better. Uh, but Galileo's really big problem that got him into trouble with the with the church was he made a little foray into religion, and he tried to explain how that his uh, son centered. Uh, model did not contradict scripture and did not contradict religion. And then he stepped into theology and it became the biggest deal that Galileo was saying that if the that if the, the earth is no longer the center of the solar system, then man is no longer the center of God's attention and the apple of God's eye. And if that's no longer true, then all of Christianity crumbles to the ground. And so that's actually what brought Galileo up before the Inquisition. It wasn't the science, because there were several others that were within the, the, pre, the, the, the rule of the church who were saying the same thing, but they were not brought up on trial. That's interesting. One of the things you mentioned too, that I, that I think is a a key component of this as this conversation that my dad and I get into all the time. My dad's been a a pastor for 30 something odd years and uh, he's fully on board with science, by the way, to be clear. Um, But one of the things we talk about is this, this term inerrancy that gets thrown around quite a lot, especially in Western Christianity. And, all the issues that kind of stem from this kind of uh, view of the Bible, this idea that the, the Bible kind of fell out of the sky, written by God himself, you know, fully formed, right, right. which, you know, it, first and foremost is ignoring an, an insane amount of historical evidence that we have that shows how the Bible came to be. But, right. you know, that's another uh, conversation entirely. But uh Talk a little bit about the history of that specifically. Uh, you know, I, I think the uh, I think of the Scopes Monkey trial and and all these things where there was. I mean, we can point in history. There was a specific time in history where the church, you know, or at least a uh, you know a, ver- a thread of the church, kind of took a stand specifically against science uh, then and there. And it's all based on this idea that the Bible is infallible, inerrant, without error, and all this sort of stuff that requires in my opinion, an insane amount of mental gymnastics to sustain. Well, interestingly, at the time of the Scopes Monkey trial, uh, it wasn't as politicized or as publicized a deal as it was after the Scopes Monkey trial. Um, And the Scopes Monkey trial interestingly, was not about teaching evolution. The Scopes Monkey Trial was specifically um, about the violation of uh, the Butler Act, which talked about teaching that man evolved from a lower, I can't recall the exact vocabulary, a lower form of life. And so that was what uh, got Scopes in trouble. 
And um, you, you may be familiar with this or not, but the whole Sculpts trial was a setup. They looked for someone uh, to use as a test case. And this poor little high school teacher volunteered that he would be the, the sacrificial lamb uh, to study this in, in court. And so, you know, of course, as it goes, Scope lost. Um, it was overturned later uh, on a technicality. But... What happened following scopes was attention was brought to evolution when because at the time, you know, not a whole lot of people had high school educations, you know, prior to the 20s. And so probably not a lot of people had studied high school biology, which was what scopes was teaching. And so from that trial on, evolution became synonymous with atheism. Because in that trial, uh, the, the um, Civil Liberties Union, the people that were trying to, um, to, to defend Scopes and those who were trying to convict Scopes made it about religion, made it about God. And in that day, even if you weren't a highly religious person, you would probably consider yourself a believer in God. And so following that Scopes trial, Evolution became synonymous with atheism, and I think we just kind of went downhill from there. But you know, as far as as far as um, you know, understanding what the Bible has to say in its ancient context and how that has been misconstrued to. Um, to, to demonstrate, to prove, uh, to proof text creationism. One of the scriptures that is burnt in my hard drive, in the King James Version, of course, <laughs> if you're someone of, of my Naturally. age, is a, is a scripture that talks about, you know, study to show thyself approved to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, that is King James Version, but more modern versions will say something along the lines of correctly explaining the word of truth. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it, but I think it's much more instructive to us to correctly explain what the scriptures, especially those scriptures that deal with origins, are saying to us. And like you said before, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky made of whole cloth. It didn't come down to us bound and 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 with our name on the front of it. Uh, but the Bible came to us as a collection of many different genres written over thousands of years, multiple cultures, uh, multiple historical backgrounds. And just even simplistically, there is a world of difference between a document that was written in an ancient Near Eastern setting and even a first century document that comes out of a Greco-Roman time. And so we know intuitively we don't read some of the Old Testament books the same way that we read the letters of Paul, for example. And we are uh, generally okay in our sermons and in our Bible study to talk about the Roman and the Greek background of some of the New Testament letters and some of the culture and how some of the things influenced uh, the way Paul wrote what he did write or the way people reacted to Jesus in his life. We seem to be a little more comfortable with that than talking about the ancient Near Eastern origins of Genesis and uh, what is going on there. And so I think just as a rule of of thumb, it might be important for us to remember that we cannot expect Genesis to be true in the same way that we expect a 21st century document to be true. That Genesis can be truth without being true, historically accurate, true as we expect a document to be in a court of law, for, ex for example, in the 21st century. 
Yeah, and it, it seems that for a lot of things, not just science, but for for a lot of different topics, you know, uh, geography, uh, you know, all sorts of things, that it's much much easier to say, okay, this, you know, as you said, it's a collection of writings written by different groups of people over thousands of years mm-hmm. who were no doubt inspired, uh, but were describing their relationship with the divine as best they could uh, through the lens of you know, what they understood, you know, based on the technology right. and the understanding of science and the world around right. them at the time. Right. 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 I think when we try to force fit science into Genesis, we do two things. We completely miss what the science is saying to us. And then we also completely miss what the scripture was intended for us to learn and to comprehend, what the people, the original writers, what the original hearers um, intended for other generations to hear and learn. So we do a disservice to the science, absolutely, by trying to force modern science into an ancient Near Eastern document. But we also do the document a disservice. Ab- absolutely. And and to think that people at, at that time would have even known, you know, you t- I talked about the debate over, you know, the status of uh, the location of Earth in conjunction with the rest of the planets. They didn't even right, know that right. other planets and other solar solar systems existed at the time. So, absolutely. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I, I, that that drives me nuts, <laughs> well, uh, and I can't decide which one like irritates me more uh, in regards to <laughs> Ken Ham's Creation Museum and the Ark exhibit, uh, the fact that it exists, or the fact that like it costs twenty seven million dollars. I read to ma- to build this thing, and then looking at the what they charge to even go in there it's like i think it was between 15 and 30 dollars for kids 35 for adults 70 for bo- i don't know and then parking on top of that it's like where's this money going and could you not have used all those millions of dollars to feed like maybe the homeless or something you know as opposed to kind of perpetuating this this argument uh you know that that we're still having in the 21st century which is beyond me at this point but um, so, so how do we begin to approach people who, you know, like the types of folks who are visiting the museum and, and, and believe this, this idea that the earth was created in six days and, you know, all this sort of thing, how do we begin to approach them and say, no, uh, science and religion are not diametrically opposed. They are in fact, beautiful dance partners, I think. You know, it's interesting when I thought about writing this book and it was the thought was haunting me in the back of my head. um, You know, are you is there really a need for this book? I know this is a passion for 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 myself, but is it really needed in the wider world? And I began to realize that in my bubble, I teach in a biology department. Uh, My close friends that I am with most often, you know, they're used to my little mini lectures at the lunch table or at the dinner table. But then summer hit and everybody starts traveling again after the COVID. And before you know it, my uh, Facebook feeds, my social media feeds were just filled with people that I've known in real life that I love and cherish going on trips to the Creation Museum and to the Ark experience. And I began to realize as I would scroll through the literally hundreds of likes from uh, on these posts by many different people from all different phases of my life that maybe I was in a bubble and that maybe there was a lot more out there and then I realized. And again, I think it comes down to the theology. It's not, people are not visiting the ark experience to necessarily see how Noah built the ark and how he got all those baby dinosaurs on there. But they're, they're visiting the ark as a affirmation that the Genesis account was true. And if Ken Ham could build this ark and show how it could all be done, that's not as important as an affirmation of the, um, the, the whole 
story of Noah. And so I wrote this book. I thought about this book I because I wanted to focus on non-scientists. And I wanted to focus on people who may, for example, be in a science field, uh, but had never studied evolution in depth like I had. For example, one of the, the comments that I saw just a few months ago on the ARC experience on a social media page uh, was from the uh, a medical doctor, a highly skilled, wonderful medical doctor. I actually know two highly skilled, wonderful medical doctors who are both young earth creationists. Uh, they have just obviously never studied it in depth. My husband is a medical doctor, and he was on the same journey as I was, as we were trying to uh, educate ourselves about evolution. And, you know, he will tell you that in medical school, you're so uh, concerned with uh, the um, vast amounts of knowledge that you have to uh, consume and the technology that you have to consume, you're not dealing with the theoretical at that point. So I wanted to write this book for people that did not have the vocabulary, the background, like I didn't, to even ask the questions. Sometimes you can't even ask a question if you don't have the vocabulary um, to start with it. But I began to realize that these people that are spending the millions of dollars, as you said, at the Ark Encounter and at the Creation Museum, these people may not be our research scientists, but these people are our teachers, and they're our pastors, and they're our school board members, and they are our politicians and our policymakers, and these people are called upon all the time to make decisions for our communities about school curriculums. I live in Texas. About every so many years, four or five years, it comes up before our state uh, school boards about whether or not we should teach the strengths and weaknesses of science theories. The evolution isn't mentioned specifically these days, but we're not talking about teaching the strengths and weaknesses of gravitational theory. <laughs> evolution is the theory um, that's always in the target. So, yeah, it, it frustrates me to see the amount of uh, traffic that these venues get. But at the same time, it brings me back to home, brings me back to Earth to say that, you know, the statistics that say 40% of Americans do not accept evolution um, is reality. And where I live in Texas, it's more like close to 50% wow. of people who consider themselves highly religious. Uh, it's close to 50% who reject uh, the science of origins and age of the earth and those kinds of things. That's remarkable. And I mean, there's certainly a parallel uh, with what we're seeing today with, you know, the, this kind of uh, battle between folks who are like, science, science is good, vaccines are good, and folks who are mm -hmm. like, nope, mm -hmm. like, I don't believe it. But there seems to be this very selective uh, belief in science, right? Like the same people who are like, I refuse to believe that these vaccines will, you know, are safe and effective are the same people who will surely take their diabetes medication at the end of the day, you know? Right. So like right. there are certain things that we believe right. scientifically, but just not this one, you know? Um, right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm so glad. You, <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because this whole year and a half of the pandemic has been so discouraging to mm. me, particularly how we see um, Christians reacting uh, to what should be done, the acceptance of the science, uh, honestly, just the treatment of some of our scientific leaders in our country by people of faith. And I realized, sadly, what we are seeing during this pandemic is we are seeing the fallout of decades of telling people of faith that scientists are not to be trusted, that scientists will tell you things that are wrong 
just because they don't want you to believe the Bible, that they will tell you things, that they will hide, for example, evidence for creation from you because they don't want you to believe in God. And so for decades, we have been telling people of faith that scientists are not to be trusted, that scientists will doctor the evidence, that scientists um, are propping up a certain uh, narrative. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's not surprising then to see uh, people saying, well, the government are these, the doctors are, are hiding these cures like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine from us because they just want us to take that government vaccine. And so you can take out some of the vaccine verbiage and you insert creationism, evolution verbiage, and you almost have an identical dialogue. Uh, because we've told Christians for decades, scientists are not to be believed. But exactly what you were saying, we will take our insulin if we have diabetes. We thank God for new cancer cures and new cancer treatments uh, without acknowledging that the exact same science that gave us those new cancer treatments tell us that all life has common ancestry and that life on earth evolved. Uh, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the science that serves me and my family personally and that the same exact science is telling us that the earth is old and that all of life is related. I, I, I love the fact that you just went there because that's where I wanted to go next. So, um, so one of the things that I think a lot, I hear a lot of detractors say, uh, it's, well, there's certain things that we can't trust. Like, for example, I hear uh, carbon dating. We can't trust that it's, it's uh, you know, it, it we can't be sure if it's correct, you know, in terms of how it, you know, uh, determines the age and that sort of thing. But that's not the only measurement by which we are coming to this conclusion, right? So talk a little bit about right. that. And because and, one of the things I, I recall seeing is, and maybe he addressed it later on, but there was a debate between uh, Ken Ham and, and Bill Nye, and he brought right. that up, and I didn't feel like Bill like addressed it well enough at the time. So talk a little bit about why we, we should trust the fact that science is showing us the evidence that, yes, the Earth actually is as old as we think it is. Well, first of all, I would say I'm not an expert by any means on the physics of dating, but I do know enough to, to, to state this, and that is, again, the, the, the procedures that we use to date rocks to a very, very ancient age um, are not used just for dating the earth. Uh, they're used in multiple other parts of, uh, of our life in science. And it can't be true in one instance and not true when it comes to dating the earth. But what I also find very interesting, and I wrote about this a bit in the book, is that we don't even need these complicated um, procedures to date rocks to know that the earth is very ancient. Um, even a school child knows that we can uh, date the age of a tree by counting uh, the rings in the tree, to count the rings of the tree. And we have trees uh, that we have on earth today that we can count the rings and we get up close to 10,000 years. So there are trees on our planet that are 10,000 years old. So we've already gone past that 6,000 year deadline and we're pushing up against the 10,000, which some young earth creationists will allow for 10,000 years of earth history. But then we can look at things like uh, lake beds. And lake beds uh, are examples of what each season, 
was like surrounding that lake. And so we can look at, there's a particular lake in Japan that is in a place that it's very calm, very still. There hasn't been a lot of glacial activity. And so the the deposits that are laid down with every year uh, can be counted in the lake bed of this particular Japanese lake. Uh, Each year we'll have slightly different pollens or particulates in the air. And using that, we can go up again until tens of thousands of years uh, of lake bed deposits. And then if we start going into ice cores, snowfall, we see something that's very similar to lake deposits in that the, the pollens in the air, the particulates in the air, the different kind of dusts vary from year to year. So snowfalls are going to be different from year to year. And taking ice cores, we can easily get up to 800,000 years of history on Earth. And so without even using things that are harder to understand, like uh, carbon dating, we already know just by using our eyes, we can count things and see that the Earth is far more ancient than six to thousand, six to 10,000 years old. But again, when you start dating rocks and we find that the Earth is, is that, you know, close to five billion year old, age there. Uh, These are not techniques that are unique to aging the earth. They are used in geology. They are used in uh, mining. They are used in oil and gas industry. And so that is actually something that I think has not been considered by a lot of people who want to hold to this six to 10,000 year old earth is that we accept this technology when it tells us one thing, but we reject the exact same technology when it tells us something about origins or the age of the earth. Catherine Hayhoe would be so happy to hear you say that. I love She's her. She's so great. Um, I need to have her back on to talk about her her newest work. But um, but yeah. So it's it it is really interesting. Like the certain these certain things that uh, folks who who don't believe the science seem to lean on. And one of the other things, and I think it yeah. was chapter three or four that you talk about, is just the way that we use the term theory because they like to say, well, it's just a theory. That means that it, there's no stability there. That that it's shaky. It's might maybe right. an opinion right. kind of thing. Talk about why that's not quite the way we use it in the world of science. Right, right. I began every semester when I teach talking about a philosophy of science. And one of the things that I always talk about on the first day of every semester is what a scientist means when a scientist uses the term theory. Now, theory is something that's used in our common vernacular, and that would be like me saying that my Dallas Cowboys are going to win it all this year. I know the Cowboys. My theory is the Cowboys have got what it takes. Well, in that particular use of the term theory is more like a best guess and maybe not even a best guess, but maybe a hopeful guess. But when scientists use the term theory, they're using the theory in a way to describe something that they are most certain about. And when you hear people arguing against evolution because it is only a theory or just a theory, um, and you hear verbiage like, well, science is just a theory, it's not a fact, or science is, or, bio, or evolution is just a theory, it's not a law. Well, in reality, laws and facts rank higher, if you were going to make a hierarchy of science terms, laws and facts would rank, high, would rank below a theory, because it is theories that make sense of laws and facts. Uh, it is theories that make sense of what we observe in any uh, uh, scientific field. Now, does this mean that theories 
uh, will never change, that they may be, uh, that they can never be tweaked in any way? Well, absolutely not. Um, I give the example of germ theory. Do we absolutely know everything there is to be known about disease and germs and pathogens? No, we don't. We will learn more about germ theory, but what we aren't going to do is go back to reading people's horoscopes or bleeding them or looking at their stars to see why they're sick. We're not going to go back to saying it's bad air that is making people sick. As we use the germ theory, as we research a new new treatments, new pharmaceuticals for new diseases, we are going to start with the foundation of germ theory. A scientist who's researching a new treatment for COVID isn't going to go back and say, well, you know, we need to start and look at the humors. Are there humors out of out of um, order? Do we need to look at, to, at their blood, at their, their, their phlegm? Do we need to look at all of these medieval things? No. We start with the foundation of medicine, which is germ theory. And so do we know everything there is to know about the theory of evolution? Absolutely not. Uh, Evolution theory will be tweaked as we learn more. For example, uh, modern genetics has taught us a tremendous amount about the theory of evolution and how evolution proceeds. And there is a a field of study in genetics called epigenetics, looking at the environmental uh, conditions in which genes are expressed. And so there's a lot of talk about where it does what we know about epigenetics fit into um, evolution. Where does this come into natural selection, these epigenetic factors? And so while the theory may be tweaked as we learn more. The theory of evolution is not going to fall when it comes to the basic principles of what the theory says. Um, Interestingly, there is a young earth creationist. He has a website called um, Core Academy, I believe it's called. And he raised a lot of ire among creationists, uh, particularly the young earth creationist type, when he came out with a blog post that said that evolution is not a theory in crisis. He said that there is no conspiracy to hide evidence for creation, and that made a lot of people angry because he thought they thought he was on their team. <laughs> now, this particular young earth creationist went on to say, I still reject evolution, but I do so as a faith choice, not a science choice, but a faith choice. So, no, evolution is not a theory in crisis. Evolution is not just someone's best guess. Evolution is the actual foundation upon which modern biology rests. Uh, There's a famous quote from the 1970s that says, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. And I think that that is to be ignored at our peril. We are closing the door on a lot of modern research if we say that we cannot consider the theory of evolution, which undergirds all of modern biology. It would be like saying, I'm going to do chemistry, but I don't believe in atoms, so I'm not going to have atoms and molecules in my chemistry. No atomic theory for me. It's just a theory, you know. But when it comes to the talking about origins, um, we try to put the theory of evolution in its own little box when it's not. It carries the same weight as gravitational theory, germ theory, atomic theory, gravitational theory. And so we can't isolate it from the study of modern biology. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, there are examples of where we see other biological entities uh, evolve. You know, there was a 
Yeah. I remember years and years ago, I remember hearing this uh, story about they had f- discovered this fish uh, that was in Lake Superior that had grown hair uh-huh. uh, to to survive the frigid cold temperatures uh, uh-huh. up there. And, and so we see that and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I think people have a really hard time, uh, you know, accepting the fact that maybe we evolved from this ape family. You know, that you see all these signs with the, you know, the cross through it. Like, not, I didn't come from a monkey. No. Right. You can't make a monkey out right. of me, you know. <laughs> right. That seems to be the sticking point. It's like, nope, fish can grow hair, right. but I did not come from a monkey. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think that we have the idea that there is something demeaning about evolution. That to say that life evolved is to demean God. And surely if we are to say that humans evolved, then that is to demean humans. Uh, And if I could get any message out there, it would be that there is nothing demeaning about a natural process that brought life to the diversity that we see today on our planet. Uh, The science just is what it is. And we don't have a problem, for example, of praying for a child. Parents who desperately want a child will pray for a child. And then when the pregnancy occurs, they thank God for that gift, for that miracle of a child full well knowing that it's going to take nine months of embryological development to bring that child to birth. And that each stage in that embryological development um, is completely natural, completely uh, expected, yet at the birth of the child, we thank God for the gift of that child. Go back further than than the conception of the child, just the formation of the gametes that came together to create that child was a biological process that, by the way, involved a tremendous amount of randomness and chance and biology and natural processes. Yet we still praise God and thank God for that child, even though the Bible says that we are knit together inside of our mothers. We fully understand it's a nine-month natural process. So I think we have this misconception that evolution somehow demeans us as humans and that evolution makes us less of image bearers of God. And, um, you know, I've thought a lot about that, too, and I've wondered if if we truly understand what it means to be God's image bearers. And I think that we have this conception that we were molded from the clay in the Garden of Eden, and God formed us to be somehow in his, um, his image his uh, characteristic image, uh, not necessarily a physical image. And I think most people would say it's not a physical image, but we don't necessarily act like we don't believe it's a physical image. You know, as image bearers, it is a function of ours to reflect God into the world. We are to be his representatives in the world. We are to reflect him into our our cultures, our communities, our world, our nation. I see the image of God more as an identity or a function and not a resemblance of some sort. And so I don't mean this to sound too crass, but does it really matter if we evolve to have five fingers or eight fingers? if we are reflecting the image of God into the world. And for that matter, does it really matter if we evolve to walk on four limbs or two? 
if we are fulfilling that function of reflecting God into the world. And I think that idea of evolution somehow demeaning humans or somehow demeaning God has thrown up a huge barrier into uh, acceptance of the idea that, that the life on our planet could have evolved through natural processes. Yeah, I completely agree with what you just said. I think I think it always comes down to this fact that Christians love to be unique. We love to be special, you know, and we yes. God forbid we find out that oh, maybe perhaps we stole some of our mythology from other religions or other uh, societies that predate us, you yeah. know, because we want to know that yeah. nope, that's unique to us and by saying yeah. that oh, perhaps it you know, the, the fully realized human being that we see before us now took millions of years and adapted and evolved, right. uh, you know, is just to say right. that we aren't as unique as, as we thought. Right. And at, like I mentioned before, that's really what Galile- got Galileo in trouble, was to suggest that humans weren't the center of it all for God. And if I think a lot of people feel that way, that if we were not the crowning achievement of God made in his image and his resemblance, then we are meaningless. And, you know, Jesus is meaningless and God is meaningless. Everything is lost if we can explain our physical existence, our physical existence through natural um, procedures, through natural causes. And it's it's this idea that... that in some way that God stopped creating, you know, and I can look yeah. out a telescope and I love the pictures of the, the, the Hubble brings back. And I'm very excited about this new telescope that's going out, out into space soon. But I, you know, I look at pictures, images that, that we, that we bring back via science. And I say, my, my gosh, God is continuing to create every second of every day of every year, you know, and it's just infinite. And I, it's just, it's beautiful. It's like a, uh, like a glimpse into, uh, God's art studio in a way. Right. Yeah. And I've heard it put something like this, that, that evolution is elegant. It's an elegant process in that it is a creation that continues to create. And that's, it's a self-perpetuating process and then in that way, it's a very elegant process. That's beautiful. And 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 human beings uh, continue to create on God's behalf. You know, and I think it's, yeah, right. as you say, it perpetuates. Right. I, I think that's a beautiful idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I know we're running short on time, but I want to give you an opportunity um, to say one last thing about the book and kind of your hopes for the book. And, and so what is kind of your your mission if you had one, if you have one for for this book? Well, I mentioned before that this book is geared toward the non-scientist and or someone who hasn't studied uh, origins in depth. Unfortunately, people who reject evolution have gained the majority of what they think they know about evolution from anti-evolution apologists. And so if everything you know about evolution comes from someone who is anti-evolution, are you truly getting a valid picture of what the science says? And so one of my goals in writing this book was to present myself as someone who was 100% and completely on team Jesus, that I am a person of faith and I would not leave that behind. But... I accept the science of evolution. I accept the science evidence for the age of the earth. Now let's talk about it. Interestingly, one of the uh, biology professors at my old alma mater, which, by the way, I'm glad to say from day one, they present evolution um, as the undergirding principle of all biology, literally from day one. He shared some of their majors uh, materials with me. And he said that when he is in conversation with his colleagues that teach at secular universities, he finds that Christian students trust him so much more 
when it comes to teaching and learning about evolution than do Christian students in secular universities. Because these Christian students are sent off to secular universities being told that you're science, you know, be careful if you're going to major in biology. Be careful because these professors are there to destroy your faith. So these Christian students at secular universities go into their classes already with their guards up that what these professors are going to tell them is going to destroy their faith and lead them into atheism. But what this professor told me at a Christian university is that students have let down their guard a bit and that because he is a Christian at a Christian university, they are far more likely to trust what he has to say. And that is a way that I see my book. I want it to be a conversation to someone who has doubts about evolution, has never studied evolution, from someone who's been there, who's had the same doubts, who's had the same um, lack of understanding of what the science says. And now let's have a discussion about it. So that was one of my big goals there. Another big goal was to have the science be user-friendly. Uh, it, some of the books that explain evolution, secular books, even some written from a Christian perspective, very quickly can get into graduate level science. And I want this book to not be intimidating. I want it to give people the vocabulary that they can need to go to the next step, to research more, uh, to learn more about it, and above all, just not to be afraid of evolution not to be afraid of the way uh, that God used to bring about life on our planet. Well, I, I think you certainly succeeded. I, I've got a copy of the book in my hand right here. You can't see it. But uh, <laughs> but it's called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, The Bible and Modern Science and the Trouble of Making it All Fit. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Like I said, the intro, or the foreword, rather, is written by Deb Harsma, who we've had on the show. Uh, so for new listeners, go back and check that one out for sure. But uh, go ahead and get a copy of this book. I think, you know, like I said, I think it does a fantastic job of breaking down these complex scientific ideas in, in ways that make sense to uh layman like myself so so congratulations on the book and uh thank you so much for coming on the show i really appreciate it thank you so much it was great i had a great time thank you
And 